This evening I'd like to talk about the theme of the retreat, which is embracing the dark and inviting the light. And I'd like to explore this theme in a way that relates to our practice, relates to our practice uh, today and opening up to the solstice. Um, So what I'd first like to do is to explore what it means to embrace the dark and really to see how embracing the dark is at the same time to invite the light. And then I'll also explore in some depth what it means to invite the light, to evoke the light. Because I think this theme really is one very helpful way to look at the entirety of our practice. We work both with going into different dimensions of darkness and opening to different dimensions of light and seeing ultimately how we hold both and how we work with both. So that's my theme this evening. And I'll invite invite us as we listen, and particularly I'm inviting those here for their first retreat to perhaps listen in a way that's a little different from how you listen to what um, a talk outside of a retreat or something on the radio so that we can really listen in a sense with our whole being like John was suggesting. We can let our minds in a way drop into our hearts and let the mind and the heart drop into the body and let the body and the heart and the mind drop into um, a, a sense of spaciousness. So I'll invite that and you may also in, in many traditions before a talk's given there's an invitation to tune into your intention for listening to the talk. So I'll just give us a moment if you'd like to, to ask about that intention and to set that intention for uh, really being with the talk itself as a kind of practice. This isn't a distraction or entertainment after a hard day. And in a way, I try to do the same. I, uh, my intention is to, as much as I can, speak out of my whole being, not just to come from the point of view of communicating ideas or words, but really to have those words be more integrated. So my practice, as it were, in giving a talk is to stay with my heart, stay with my body. And so if I need to make an adjustment during the talk, I will. So first going into the darkness, a poem from Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. 
go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. To know the dark, go dark. So I want to explore a few different themes of what it means to go into the darkness, connect them with our practice. First, going to the darkness as this stopping, this going into um, stillness and silence, much like the earth is still and silent at this time. And the second aspect of darkness is to go into the unknown. We see how we, in many cultures, darkness is used as a metaphor. And one, one aspect is to go into the unknown. And these are all, again, aspects of our practice. The third is darkness as the difficult or the challenging. How do we do that in our practice? And then the fourth is the darkness as fertile, as creative, as generative, as uh, dynamic. And how do we see that in our practice as well? So yesterday and today we, we've explored that, sense, that first sense of darkness as much like the earth at this time, we stop, we come to the retreat, we in many ways um, drop so much of what's happening. We drop the activities and in a way we invite the um, mind habits to drop as well they drop somewhat less easily than the activities. Have you noticed <laughs> that, the, that there's a certain momentum of the mind and yet over time those drop also. But we invite that kind of stopping, we invite that kind of uh, stillness. We really, in a way, we imitate the trees and the earth This is from a wonderful book by uh, John Tarrant, uh, who is a psychologist and a, a Zen teacher who lives nearby here. This is a book called The Light Inside the Dark. The ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree, cross-legged in a quiet room or by the fire, the important thing is that we turn towards an intense inwardness. There, silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world, from the earliest band gathered on the sandstone cliffs looking for the sun to rise. We are at the water hall at dawn. The beasts arrive and drink and leave, yet we remain. Thoughts, memories, sorrows, excitements, they rise and have their time and fall away. We sink deeper into the silence until it becomes its own desire and fulfillment. We yearn to immerse ourselves to touch this ground every day. This devoted attention sets us in relationship to the source. Everything is born out of the silence, grass, rivers, stars, children, animals, and love. And so we 
in our practice, we also stop in a way. We work with stillness as an encouragement to the stillness of the mind. We use the breath and we use the body to, as it were, encourage the mind to become quieter. We come in, in a way uh, out of the stillness and out of the uh, silence. In a sense, we learn better how to move and we hear what we need to hear when we become silent like that. We come back to ourselves in a way. I know my own experience has often been, uh, particularly in, in years when I was um, working as a, a teacher, or I was also a, um, a student. I was a teacher at um, universities. And before that, I was a graduate student. And I would be working very hard And then I would always schedule a retreat at the end of the cycle. And I would, as it were, I would come back to myself. All the activity, all the busyness, where am I? You know, what's going on? I'm lucky just to have got done what had to be done, right? You can feel like that coming into the retreat. And then we sit and what needs to come to attention comes to attention. Not always immediately. Not always when we want I was talking in a group and we were looking at that question of expectations of, okay, I have a plan for the retreat. I know it has to arise. Okay, it's the end of the first day. This should be arising, working out this unresolved issue or these emotions should surely be happening. And I was thinking of um, my brother is a musician. I was thinking of a band that he used to play in where they played a, an old Southern gospel song and it had a line in it which went, uh, talking about God, he may not come when you want, but he's right on time. <laughs> I was thinking about that in relationship to our practice, that uh, if you want to hum that at the beginning of a sitting, feel free. <laughs> I don't know if I'll actually sing it. We have a rhythm section here. <laughs> so... Um. But I was also thinking, I was uh, talking about music, I was also thinking of the um, song, the old song from the 1960s by the Supremes uh, in relation to the theme of stopping. You know that song, Stop in the Name of Love? That's what we're doing. (laughs) You can hum that song at the beginning of the city if you wish also. Um, So we do that. We... We, we stop, we come to stabilize our attention through that stopping, through that continual coming back to the breath, to the body, to the present moment. And even when it's hard, we, you know, there's, I, th- I think Heather said something like this, or maybe she didn't, but she might have. <laughs> <laughs> Any of us might have. Um, there, there, is, there is a beautiful quality of mercy in this practice. Whatever has happened in the past, whether it's the past in terms of a year or five years or even a lifetime, or whatever has happened in the last sitting, it doesn't matter. 
we simply stop and return to the present. And there's a tremendous amount of mercy in that. And really, it's that sense of each moment is a new beginning. We stop, we come back. And there's something that's very, very uh, hopeful, really, about that. Hopeful, and it means that there's actually a freedom that we're not caught, ultimately, by anything that's happened. We can always come back. We can always uh, keep starting over. And we do that. So the second aspect of darkness is uh, darkness as being with the unknown or the mysterious. And there's also a way that we, on retreat, do this in a number of different ways. We practice being with the unknown. And I was mentioning one aspect of that is that we have to, in a way, notice those expectations and let them go and really trust in that moment-to-moment experience. You know, as we practice more, there is a trust or a faith that builds in the unfolding of our own experience and really the unfolding of experience generally. That's something that as we stay with this process more and more, we, ha- we can have a trust that what needs to unfold will. Sometimes it's helpful to give a few nudges or to have someone else look at it and, and help give some guidance. But there's a, there's a basic uh, trust that uh, basically our organism um, has a deep impulse towards awakening and freedom. That's really what it is. And we, we, rest, we can rest in that. And as we practice, that trust in that gets, gets deeper. And so there is something very powerful about this sitting with the unknown, sitting with the mysterious. And I was reflecting on, on this quality of being with the unknown as an aspect of darkness in two ways. One of them is in regard to the larger trajectory of our lives. And the, the second is in relationship to mindfulness practice. They're, they're both different ways of being with the unknown. And this first aspect of it is this way that we um, really in retreat, we can check in sort of beneath our stories and expectations. And we can ask in the I was thinking of this beautiful phrase. I think it's from a Mary Oliver poem. We can really check in and say, where is my wild, precious life at this moment? In Mary Oliver's sense of, where is this wild, precious life? Where are we? And I know for myself, going to retreats, you know, after the busyness or after things settle, it's to say, let me look deeper. Where am I? What's my trajectory? What do I feel as um, an edge of growth right now? And we may know that what that is, in a sense, intellectually. We may have a sense of that. We may have a good sense of it, but we know it in a deeper way, as it were, in our body, our intuitions, our, our guts. We know more what's happening with ourselves. You know? And Retreats can be a wonderful place to go when we don't know exactly what's happening with our lives. And I know that some of you are 
at uh, places of transition in your lives. In a deep sense, all of us are, actually. <laughs> but for many of us, there's, there's a, a major transition occurring. And I know for myself, being on retreat has been really beautiful at those times of transition. I, I know about 10 years ago, I knew that I needed to, in a way, um, deepen in order to know what my next step was. I had a pretty good intellectual sense of what it would be, but it wasn't in my uh, guts, I was using that language, um, so fully. And I was able to take the better part of a year and drop everything, which was a privilege. Not everyone can do that. In fact, few can do that, maybe. But I was able to drop my work, or actually I didn't drop it fully, but I found a way to confine my work to five days a month. And four months of the year, zero. <laughs> zero, zero times a month. And I left my involvement with almost all the major activities I was with, involved with. At that time, I was the co-editor of a journal, I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I was involved with all these things. I just dropped them. People told me bad things would happen if I dropped them. Not to me, but to... Uh, I was told that the journal would surely really flounder without me. Wasn't true. <laughs> and I went into this period of really not knowing for better part of a year, and actually after about seven or eight months, I had a much clearer sense of where to go. And it was sometimes, of course, scary, you know, to be without so much structure. You know, what am I doing and what's going on and so forth. And several months of that year were spent on retreat, and there was a real um, uh, power, I found, ultimately, of opening in that way to what was unknown, what was mysterious. And I think that's something like that. It doesn't have to be a year. It can be a week. At other times, it's been just to, to check in, to look for a week or to look for two weeks. You know, and I, I've, I've been interested in this kind of um, period of unknowing. And I actually studied in a number of people some similar process. Of course, we have the story of the Buddha, who, as many of you know, left the known confines of a life as a prince. He left the palace where he had his life totally set up for him. You know, He was a prince who was going to be a king, and everything was lined up to have immense degrees of pleasure and power. And something in him said there's something deeper and he actually went into the unknown for six years. Or I looked at the life of Gandhi. Gandhi's life was filled with these kinds of um, periods. You know, he was in South Africa for a number of years. And when he came back to India, I think this was 1915, he said, I'm not going to do anything. I want to just listen. And he said, I want to listen for one year. 
when he went around India, he said he wanted to have his ears open but his mouth shut. He did that for a year and of course that was, that was pivotal. Or I was thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher who went through a very difficult period in the 1970s where he was working with the boat people and not having much success with, with a lot of the governments. And he, it, something was really uh, challenging in a way that he needed to pull back some. And so he, he went into this really a kind of a retreat for about five years where he did no teaching, mostly gardened and stayed close to the land and wrote poetry. You know, and helped with the community, but mostly was not active. And out of that five years came incredible activity. You know, I think what I found, you look at the lives of the Buddha or Gandhi or Thich Nhat Hanh, out of those periods of unknowing came a profound deepening and tremendous creativity coming out of that. And so on, on a personal level, we can stay with the unknown and retreats are beautiful ways to do that, to let something well up from somewhere deeper. Some of you may know this beautiful uh, passage in a response by the poet uh, Rilke to a young poet, the famous uh, letters to a young poet. I always enjoy the fact that the young poet was like 21 and Rilke was 29. <laughs> you know, letter should have been letters to a young poet from a young poet. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but this young poet, age 21, was wanting to get everything totally worked out. And this is what Rilke responded. This is what Rilke said really is about this theme of, of staying with the unknown. Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. So in our practice, we can work at that level of our life journey, of our life trajectory. And we also relate to the unknown very much um, in our practice of mindfulness, that mindfulness is a practice of continually being present with whatever, with whatever arises, not knowing exactly moment to moment what will arise. Mindfulness is this capacity to be open to experience and to respond to whatever we're experiencing with a direct focused awareness on whatever appears. It's that very simple quality to be present-centered, to be directly 
with experience as much as possible to be non-reactive and non-judgmental and to have, as I think as Heather was suggesting, a quality that really is that of care and, and warmth in being with experience. But it is to be, in a way, open and to be with the unknown moment to moment. We sit here and we don't know what's going to happen. Again, we have our plans, our expectations. And as you mature in your practice, your plans and your expectations will be a source of humor as you tell stories of your retreats. So we, <laughs> we try to be open to experience. And sometimes, especially when I've done longer retreats, it's been very helpful for me just to sit. And right at the beginning of sitting, say, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to be here and be present. It's a great uh, leading intention for our sitting to have that quality of openness. Because there's actually, in that simple openness, there are qualities of courage, there are qualities of um, equanimity. There are qualities really of wisdom, knowing that we can't really control for very long our experience. And in that openness, we notice the ways that we try to constrain experience, or we notice the ways that we try to fit what's happening into our own stories and narratives. This is happening. This is the way my sitting is. This says this about me as a meditator. It's actually a way of trying to make sense of things, which of course is a normal human um, capacity to make meaning of things, but we try here to really stay with the direct experience and be very careful about the stories which would run off with experience at the first moment. Oh, this means this. Oh, a moment of fear arises. Oh, this must mean this. You know, not to mention the habitual stories we tell ourselves about being good or bad or capable or whatever it might be. A few lines from the Buddha. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is, in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. There's something that's, that freedom is connected with the capacity to be open, to be with the unknown. We can, again, see that as one aspect of darkness. A common metaphor in our culture is to also to see darkness as the difficult. And I want to explore that. You know, partly when we stop and we open, we get the whole mix. We get what the Chinese call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And on the first full day of a retreat, we get rather more of the latter, generally. <laughs> so we have, you know, we sit and there are challenging experiences that happen. We have what? Restlessness or sleepiness. We have 
raging mind, raging habitual mind, out of control, totally going on, going to this where and that place and all over the place and what is this? Why won't this stop? Has anyone experienced that? You know, so we have, um, we may have aversion, we may have desire, we may have um, not liking something that's happening or not liking someone in the hall. It occasionally happens. Actually, we call these, as those of you who've been to retreats know, we talk about Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. <laughs> they occur. <laughs> you know, but we can notice that. The mind can get preoccupied in those ways. You know, and we can have doubts. We can have this whole range of experiences that are challenging. Difficult emotions can occur. You know, not just the first day, of course, but, but as we open, you know, there are challenges that we have. One of my favorite, maybe my favorite focused teaching that I find in, in all of the discourses of the Buddha gives me, a, gives, I think, a very, very succinct way of talking about how to work with uh, challenges or how to work with the difficult. And it's this uh, wonderful teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And how many of you know this teaching? Yeah. A number of you. If you've been to anything I've taught, you know it because I fairly, I, I um, don't often have a whole retreat without talking about it. So you may know it quite well. Um, but it's actually, a, it's sort of a, a short version of the Four Noble Truths. Sort of the Four Noble Truths becomes the two arrows. So it's kind of half as lengthy. So, so here's the teaching. The, the teaching um, originates as a question. The question is, based on the fact that all of us experience uh, pleasure and pain. To be a human being is to experience the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral. And we all, in particular, experience at times the unpleasant. And the Buddha asked, how does, how does a non-practitioner differ from a practitioner in relationship to the unpleasant. And the teaching is thus. We are all, as it were, shot by an arrow. We could call that the arrow of the unpleasant, the arrow of pain. Everyone experiences this arrow at times. It can be the unpleasant experience in the body, an unpleasant experience in the mind, <clears throat> difficult emotions. We can experience physical pain. We can be treated unfairly or unjustly. And everyone has that experience. Everyone is shot by the arrow, the first arrow. We could call that the arrow of pain. 
in that a practitioner is no different from a non-practitioner. Where the difference lies in how, is, how, is in how one responds to that first arrow. And what the Buddha teaches is that those who are not practitioners for ourselves at certain moments will tend, because of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow, either at oneself or at others or at both, as if shooting that second arrow would help the pain. And so some examples of that. So this is really to say um, the second arrow is reactivity. We could also say the second arrow is suffering. So for example, I have unpleasant physical sensations in my body. What do I do often? I tense around them. I physically often tense around what's unpleasant in the body. And that may actually create much more pain than the original stimulus, than the original unpleasant sensations. And I've heard doctors say as much as 80% of what patients experience as physical pain is not the actual original experience, but it's the reactions. It's the second arrow, which is why meditation can be so powerful in a medical setting. You know, where it's the way that I have a difficult experience have, let, uh, I have a difficult experience occur, let's say in relationship to someone close to me. I have a difficult interaction, maybe someone says something to me that, that I don't like, I feel sad or hurt or whatever, and I may react for three days, for three hours, for three years, for 30 years, and spend immense amounts of money on therapy because of that reaction. You know, that I, I can very easily blame myself, I can blame others. That's the second arrow. Or someone says something mean-spirited to me, and I will often just react and say something mean-spirited right back. That's the second arrow. And it's as it were, I have pain, and I somehow think that passing on the pain to others will protect me, will defend me. And so actually a large number of conflicts are people shooting second arrows at each other. And a large number of the wars in our world, we might say, are second arrow affairs. I have received pain, I pass on the pain to others as if that would work. And, you know, as is said in so many texts and so many traditions, the only way that, that pain, or we might say if I get, have aggression or hatred coming towards me, the only way that gets healed is through non-reactivity, through care, through love, through wisdom. And in our context, it's, how it's, it's learning better, better and better, how to work with that first arrow so we don't shoot the second arrow. In part, that means to be with the difficult. It means to have the capacity to be present 
with unpleasant physical sensations when they're not causing damage, and to be there without immediately becoming reactive. It's part of the learning in this practice. We sit as we stay more in this uh, uh, retreat world. We sit to a certain extent with physical pain at times. We learn how to be there. We sit with emotional pain at times and learn how to be present with it without reacting so much. We learn how not to shoot the second arrow. You know, on a very ordinary level, in terms of our, you know, some of what may be occurring on the retreat right now, we learn how to be with what is unpleasant as manifesting as sleepiness or as aversion or desire or um, having things happen that we don't want. And we learn just how to be present with whatever we're thinking, whatever we're feeling. We learn better how to do that. We learn how to be mindful. And we learn how to, how to work skillfully as well. So we can, part, part of the response to these challenging states that, we may, that may be occurring in this first day is simply to be mindful, to know that they're, that they're happening. And this sets in motion the capacity to have that skillful response. It's very hard to be skillful in response if we don't know what's happening. And so mindfulness is key. So I can say to myself, I'm sleepy. What would a skillful response be? Or there's aversion. There's a lot of aversion happening. Or I'm really being judgmental towards myself. How should I respond to that? And that's crucial, is to have that quality of mindfulness. And then with each of those different states, we can also do other things which are skillful. If we're feeling sleepy, we can know that it's very ordinary on the first day. We can give ourselves some slack. Sometimes it's helpful to stand up or sometimes in sitting, just to open the eyes for a while. Some energy can come in through the eyes or to, in the walking meditation, walk a little more vigorously. These are all helpful if there is um, sleepiness. You know, similarly, if there's restlessness, we can be uh, present with it, know what's happening, and ask, how might I respond? And sometimes it's just a matter of writing it out and developing more concentration. You know, if there's self-judgment occurring a lot um, in our practice, we can, again, be mindful, notice it's happening. We might do metta. We might do metta towards self. Very, very uh, wonderful way to respond. We may just keep on noticing. We may develop that greater sense of kindness to, um, to ourselves, or if we're judging others, we can, we, can, we can do that. And so we learn better how to be with the difficult. We learn better how to be with, um, as it were, the dark places that manifest as difficulty. We learn better how to do that individually, and we can bring that into our world because in many ways, as I mentioned yesterday, the world is difficult. It's going through difficulties, through troubles, and it deeply needs people who are skillful with difficulties. In a way, there, there's a way that much of our culture doesn't want to deal with difficulties. You know, wants everything to be easy, doesn't want to 
stay with what's challenging. You know, there's a, I'll read you a powerful passage that, that for me is powerful from Michael Mead about this, about the, really the cultural importance of having people who know how to be with the difficult. This is some, Michael Mead is a storyteller and mythologist who lives up in the Seattle area who wrote this right after 9-11. Those who would know the world and recover the dream of life must pass through the darkened center, traveling where no ideology can know the meanings in the human soul. Here, success and speed are an encumbrance. It is better to move carefully and examine whatever appears. He wasn't talking about mindfulness, but it slipped in. (laughs) The rubble in the human soul is enormous. Clearing takes time, healing longer yet. And the hope that a living person will be found amidst the ruins is also the desire in each of us for a renewal of life, a redemption from ourselves, a recovery from the rubble of our own darkness. On most days, America, he says, fears the darkness. The open 24-hour signs and lights always on say that. The rejection of darker people says that. The win-at-any-cost dogma says that. Yet always climbing to the top and rising to the light cast an increasing shadow over the world and loses touch with many things that the earth, that the earth darkly knows. So there's that importance, I think, just both for ourselves and for our world in becoming skillful with the difficult, with darkness as difficult. Now, moving closer towards the light. Partway through the talk, the light appears more fully. Um, this is the fourth sense of darkness, the dark, darkness as fertile, darkness as creative, as generative, really as opening up to the light. It's very much in the same way that the earth right now seems to be doing nothing, but is actually madly at work preparing spring. You know, all those, all that photosynthesis or whatever, I guess, all the all this stuff going up with the xylem and phloem and it's happening, <laughs> right? It's happening out there, in there. And very much like that, we, as we learn to be more with the darkness, we do get a sense of the creativity. We have that sense that if I stay with the unknown or with the difficult, uh, if I am still, if I stop, that we can really trust more and more that something creative and positive and beautiful comes out, that in a, in a sense, the light comes out of that, that we can, in a way, trust the darkness. Another uh, poem by Rilke. Actually, two poems. First is just a segment. He says, my God is dark, and like a web, a hundred roots silently drinking. And then he says, you darkness of whom I am born, I love you more than the flame that limits 
the world, to the circle it illumines and excludes all the rest, but the dark encompasses everything, shapes and shadows, creatures and me, people, nations, just as they are. It lets me imagine a great presence stirring beside me. I believe in the night, he says. Can be a growing faith in the darkness and it helps when we can see how there can be coming out of the out of the unknown, we can have insight. The life stories of those I mentioned, always, um, well, at least in those stories, something deeply creative came out of those times of unknowing. And also I say for myself, the story that I told was tremendously generative of a number of years that followed from that year of not knowing and really um, going more into the mysterious. We can see how being with the difficult can also give tremendous rewards and and, and power. There's a beautiful story that some of you may know from the doctor and healer, Rachel Naomi Remen, that's in her book called uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom. And it's a story about uh, a young man who was in his 20s and had um, cancer and lost a leg because of that. And he had been an athlete and very physically active and went through a tremendous amount of uh, sorrow, grief, anger. Near the beginning of their work together, she asked him to draw an image of his situation. And he drew, he drew the image of a vase. In the center of the vase was this deep black line, a a crack that was going through the entirety of the vase. In other words, he saw himself as broken. He saw himself as shattered in a way. But he stayed with the process of working with her. I think this was in the program called Commonweal, which is not, not far away. Some of you may know that program. And he actually stayed with the program and started to help with others and he helped in particular with a a young woman who had a a family history of breast cancer and lost her breast in in, in her 20s and was devastated and he worked with her and in in the story there are these very humorous places where you know at first she doesn't know he doesn't have uh, both legs and he, you know, she's complaining and so forth and he takes off one of his legs right there and hops, a lo- hops around on one leg. And they actually eventually marry. Towards the end of his time there, about a year and a half, being in the presence of difficulty and challenge, um, um, she asked him to come back in and look at the original drawing. And he looked at it and he said, it's incomplete, that drawing of the vase with the large crack dominating the picture. And he started um, with a yellow crayon and started drawing these yellow lines all around the crack 
And he said to her, this is where the light comes in. Through that opening to the um, difficulty, that's where the light comes in. And we can see that in, in a retreat. We can see that in dramatic ways. We can see that in very ordinary ways. We can see how some insight comes out of staying with the unknown or staying with the difficult. We can see how light arises out of that. And we can also, and this is really moving to the inviting the light part, we can also deliberately open up to the light. We can do practices that are open to the unknown. We can also do practices that deliberately cultivate what we might call the light, the qualities of awakening, the qualities of mindfulness, the loving kindness practice. These are really inviting what we might call the radiant heart, the radiant mind. We can deliberately invoke that. And in my own experience, personal experience, and in my teaching experience, I have found that the essence of transformation and this is actually on the individual level as well as transformation and relationships and transformation more culturally or even politically, that it involves two processes. One is the capacity to be with what's difficult. And the other is the deliberate creation or, in, or evocation of the beautiful, of the light. So for example, I do a lot of work on the theme of judgment. Some of you who've worked with me know I've been, um, as a, um, what, um, a recovering judgmental person <laughs> <laughs> who is conditioned to find safety and superiority through judgment. Perhaps like some of you. Anyway, from doing practice time with that, I also I started to do teaching on it. It seemed to resonate to the point where I'm actually now in the middle of writing a book on this theme. So watch, watch out for what you have as your main tendencies. <laughs> uh, but, but what I have found in working with people is that we both go into the territory that's somewhat painful with judgments, but we also very much create the beautiful. We create the increasingly radiant heart. And so it's a really, and that both are necessary. Both are fundamental. And in some parts of our practice, it's really more important to go into the difficulties. And at some points in our practice, it's really important actually to forget about the difficulties for a while. Please don't misunderstand this <laughs> teaching. Uh, but to actually cultivate the beautiful, to cultivate the, the open heart to really know that we have these amazing resources in ourselves and to get more familiar with them, to build, we might say, our resource base. Then we go back to the difficulties. But I have found that in working with people that we need to do that, that we can um, really deliberately cultivate these radiant qualities of our being. And in so many teachings, it's said that this is actually our basic nature. 
that we, it's, as it were, the difficulties are real, but they're actually in working with them. It's a way to uncover what's more basic. In Buddhist tradition, we sometimes call this Buddha nature. You know, and it's, it has certain qualities. It has, a lot of times it's talked about in terms of light, in terms of radiance. You know, in some very beautiful passages of, of the Buddha, he says, luminous are, these, are, the, are the mind and heart. This the practitioner comes to know. Luminous are the mind and heart, but without practice one can't know this. There's a quality of luminosity, radiance of the mind with a clear awareness. It can be felt as radiant. Sometimes we feel that when our minds get very still, the whole of the natural world becomes radiant, sparkles, very, very wonderful. And we can feel the heart also as radiant. You know, in that text of the Buddha, that luminosity is understood as connected with metta, with loving kindness. And we can open up to those qualities of light through the practices that we do and come to know that more and more as our nature, more and more hang out there, more and more have that be present, these radiant qualities, you know, that are in the heart, they're in the body, they're in the mind, they're really in our being they're in the natural world and we can we can touch that so as we cultivate this capacity to be with the darkness in these various ways and as we deliberately evoke the light we actually come to see how they are connected that being with the dark can open us to the light if we try to attach to the light without being willing to go into the dark, it doesn't work. It actually is um, based on a fear of the darkness. And we need to be able to open to both. And we develop ultimately this, really this great mind, this great heart, this great equanimity which holds both well which can hold both the darkness and the light and can go into the darkness when necessary. Go into the unknown, go into the difficult and can do so increasingly with light present, with the qualities of mindfulness and the, the open heart. And this is what we're training for. This is the trajectory. This is the kind of the um, picture. One of, it's one way to talk about the picture of our practice. And to see that we need really to hold both of them. You know, and some of us maybe, maybe need to train more with the light. We may be really familiar with the dark. You know, even wear dark clothing or something like that. Or get really, we may be very familiar with difficult emotions. And it may actually be our edge to open up to more light, to more of the open heart. And if we we may be over attached maybe to the light and it may be important to be, able, be willing to open up to the unknown or to the difficult. And we see the way they're related. We see the way we can hold both. So I'll finish with uh, 
Another one of my favorite poems, this is from uh, Pablo Neruda from Chile, which is um, a poem about how this immersion in the dark can bring the light. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. I'll read that one more time. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So let's just sit together for a minute or two. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Thank you so much for your attention. We have now... um, about half an hour for walking. And we'll come back to the last sitting of the day. And at the end of that sitting, we'll have some chanting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.